Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Lord willing, we are going to look at verses 14 through 18 today. I say that because I am not feeling well. And I, I may cut this sermon in half and pull up the plug. And so my sermon might change as we go along. And we might have to pick back up on this next week. So pray for me uh, that I'd be able to get through it. If you don't have a Bible with you, in the Bibles in the chairs, it's page 977. We look at the Bible a lot. And so it's going to be really helpful for you to have that, have it open in front of you. I will refer to it often. Now, if this is your first time with us, on the Sundays where I get to preach, I've been working my way through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a great book. It's a glorious book that's all about what it means for us as believers in Christ to be united in him. Through the sacrificial death of the Son of God on the cross, for our rebellion, for our hatred, for our enmity against God, and through his resurrection from the dead, that we can now, by turning away from our sin and following after Christ, trusting in him, we receive new life, not just as individuals, but a new corporate life, and we can be eternally reconciled both to God and to his people. Christ unites us. In Christ, we are united. We are united to God vertically through him, and we are united to each other horizontally through him. And the reality is, this is probably what makes, well, it is. It's what makes the church distinct. It's what makes the Christian faith distinct. It's not ultimately about our religious practices, though they come into play. It's not ultimately about our doctrinal statement, our set of beliefs, though we can't do without those. It's not ultimately about our views of morality or the world around us. It's not even our worship style. It's certainly not our worship style, but when we gather together. But the thing that makes the church distinct is the person of Jesus Christ and his work in us that reconciles us both to God and to each other. That is the same or should be the same in every true Christian church, no matter where you go and what age that you have lived in and what part of the globe that you find yourself on. That is what unites us all. Christ, who he is and what he has done to reconcile us both to God and man. When we think about that, all those other things that we try to bring into church, they, they don't matter as much. Ultimately, this is what sets us apart. As we, the church, faithfully follow Christ, then the gospel of Christ is put on display. It's made visible for the world to see. People can see something different about us in the way that we relate to God and the way that we relate to others. Now, unfortunately, if you examine the lives of many professing Christians, and if you just watch the daily interactions within many churches, they really don't look that much different than those who don't follow Christ. Now, they might dress a little differently. Perhaps they decorate their homes with religious paraphernalia. Maybe they listen to a different radio station when they're in the car. Maybe... Maybe they're a little bit nicer, seemingly, than everybody else. But on the whole, all in all, their lives are not that much different than anyone else. Their lives do not display the solidarity with God and with others that they profess. 
And if your experience was anything like mine, many of the churches that you grew up around that professed union with Christ were full of division and strife, hostility and enmity and jealousy and pride and separation. There were feuds. Perhaps you've been hurt by wars or factions within these groups who were called by God to love each other, to look differently and live differently in the world. Maybe you've even been a part of it. Is that really what the Christian life is like? Or is there something more? How do we as broken, fallen, separating, and alienating sinners live as those whom God has brought near by the blood of Christ? What difference should the peace offered in the gospel have to do with our relationships with each other? These are the kinds of questions that we are going to explore this morning in Ephesians 2 verses 14 through 18. The gospel is a message of peace. Peace with God and peace with God's people. In the gospel, we are made one. And it is, a, it is achieved in Christ and through the power of the gospel, it is made more and more and more a reality in our lives. This is what makes us distinct. This is how we know we're Christians. Christ is our peace and Christ is making peace between us. And so what we need to understand from this text this morning is that Christ is the peacemaker for our peacemaking. Christ is the peacemaker for our peacemaking. And so for context, we're going to pick up in verse 11. Our sermon is on 14 through 18. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh with hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body thereby on the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached to Peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now God has given us this text so that we might see the glory of Christ's work of reconciliation both between us and God and each other and so that we might actively pursue it. Christ is the peacemaker for our peacemaking. And so I want to look at this text in terms of Christ's completed work of peacemaking, sort of past tense, and then the ongoing effects of his ministry in our pursuit of peacemaking. Okay, so you've got past completed action, you have ongoing continual action as Christ is making peace and that is manifest in us. If I have to pull the plug, I'll only cover that first part, okay? So first we see that Christ is our peacemaker. 
I'm dividing this by answering three questions. To get this, we need to answer who, how, and why. Okay? Who, how, and why. First, let's answer the who. Now, peace, obviously, is an important word in this text. In verses 14 through 18, Paul says it four times in these few verses. Now, what comes to mind when you think of the word peace? Do you think about disarmament? Do you think about resolving hostilities? Do you think about settling conflict? Do you think about calm, comfortable, harmonious feelings? You know that peaceful, easy feeling? Well, you know, each of these are partial descriptors in, uh, of peace, but the gospel is intended to do more, so much more, than any one of these. Peace in the, in the broadest biblical sense means well-being. It means completeness, soundness. Christ not only brings a, a removal of enmity between us and God, the hostility there is removed, but also harmony and reconciliation and well-being to all aspects of our lives. Not that life is just keen and great and you have your best life now, but that Christ he has an impact on that. He changes the way that we think. And even when we find ourselves in difficulties and struggles and hardships and conflict, it all changes because of Jesus who is making peace in us. So peace is essential to our understanding of the gospel. Just looking throughout Paul's letters and how he talks about peace. He says, the gospel is called the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6. It is established and given by the God of peace in 1 Corinthians 14. Christ is the mediator of that peace according to Romans 5 and Colossians 1. He gives peace to believers according to 2 Thessalonians 3. Not just in terms of reconciliation to God or well-being to our souls, but harmony and unity to our relationships with others. I mean, just read Paul. Okay, if you need a few examples, Romans 14, Ephesians 4, 2 Timothy 2. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. And it is the mindset of those who are focused on living in the Spirit, according to uh, Galatians 5 and Romans 8. This God, given peace, not only guards our hearts in Christ Jesus, according to Philippians 4, but also rules our hearts in Christ Jesus, according to Colossians 3. And peace is our heavenly reward, according to Romans 2. The gospel is meant to bring peace and reconciliation to every aspect of our lives, to bring oneness and soundness as we are united together in Christ under God. But Christ doesn't just bring peace and reconciliation. It's not just something that he does. Paul says the most amazing thing here in verse 14. In fact, it can really serve as a title or a summary of this whole section. He says, for he, that is Christ himself, is our peace. That Christ and Christ alone is our peace. I mean, think about how profound this statement is. He's the embodiment of peace. The peace is not some concept or some idea. Peace is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. We don't talk like this. I mean, let's think about it. Michael Jordan, arguably the best basketball player in history. We do not say that Michael Jordan himself is basketball. Right? Henry Ford, very influential, instrumental in developing the automotive industry. But we don't say that Henry Ford is the automotive industry. 
There have been so many great peacemakers throughout the history of the world. I mean, think about it. Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln, Mother Teresa. Some even claim Santa Claus, just to name a few. But they wouldn't say that any one of them is the embodiment of peace. Now that statement, that he himself is our peace, that is stated only and rightly confirmed in one man, Jesus Christ. The reason why any of us who were once far off have been brought near to God and to each other is because Christ himself is our peace. He is our reconciliation, our well-being, our soundness, our harmony, our completeness. It is embodied in and given in Jesus Christ alone. He is our only true hope for peace. Peace is not achieved through our own self-willed efforts, a disarmament or conflict resolution. Peace will not come through education, through self-denial, through avoidance, through clemency, through governmental control, through free speech, or through finding our inner peace by chanting mantras, meditation, or prayer. Peace is a person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. Now that gets at the who. But now let's see how that peace is achieved. Here Paul focuses on Christ's work. It's been interesting that so far in Ephesians, we've covered up to chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 10, Paul has been focusing almost exclusively on God the Father's work, what he has been doing to bless us, to choose us, to predestine us, to adopt us, to redeem us, to reveal himself to us, to bestow his lavish grace upon us, to seal us with the Holy Spirit, to redeem us, to make us alive in Christ, and so on and so forth. But now here, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, he begins to shift his focus to look exclusively at the work of God the Son. And we'll see the Spirit's work later on. But the amazing thing here is that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, are, is actively at work in every aspect of our salvation and life in Christ. The primary work that we see Christ doing in this passage is making peace. He's bringing reconciliation. He's making us one in and through himself. In verse 13, we saw that in Christ, those who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. As we continue in verse 14, Christ has made us both one. Now, when he says both, he's talking about Jew and Gentile, right? That he has united them. In addition, Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's a lot. We're going to unpack it. Christ's death on the cross not only pays the penalty that our sins deserve so that we might have peace with God, But his death also removed the barriers that brought separation between us. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross not only brought peace between us and God, but peace between each other as well. Now, a bit of reminder from last week. Last week I told you that we all share in a common history. We are all part of one story. There's one story of humanity 
And it doesn't begin with separation and animosity and division and hostility and war. It begins with perfect communion with God and perfect communion, perfect community with each other. We have the same origin. As the story unfolds, you soon read that that Adam and Eve desired to be like God. They wanted independence from God. They wanted to be able to determine their own settings and boundaries and stages in life. And so they rebelled against God. And as a result of that, they brought all kinds of turmoil and strife, not just upon themselves, but on all of humanity. All of humanity had that same desire to live for themselves, to live as if this is my world and I'm God. I'm going to live my life without you. I'm going to separate and divide and hide from you. I'm going to be independent from you and everything and everyone else. Same sinful condition that resulted in the same punishment, death, and eternal separation from God. But in this passage, we see that we all share in the same hope for the same cure. And that is Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ not only brings peace between us and God, but between each other as well. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, if you're like me at all, you just like, you zoom in on this and you want to know, what is it? What is it? What is this dividing wall of hostility he's talking about? Well, we don't have to look very far because Paul tells us what it is. Quite literally, Paul says, the dividing wall of barrier, that is hostility. Okay? But then he goes on to say that Christ has made us both one and has broken down that wall in his flesh by, div- by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Okay, what does that mean? Well, Jew and Gentile. Right? You've got the Jews, the chosen people of God, and then you have the Gentiles, which is everyone who is not a Jew. Everybody in this room fits in the latter category. We are Gentiles, right? I don't think we have any, any Jews here, okay? The Jews were the promised people of God. They were the chosen ones. God had selected them from among all of the nations. That God had revealed himself specifically to them. He had delivered them. He had made his promises to them. He had interacted and engaged with them in ways that he didn't interact with the Gentiles who were outside of that. And it was God who gave the Jews his law. This law that told them how they were to live in a relationship with God. How they were to live with each other in fellowship with God. And of course that law brought all sorts of Issues. What happens if somebody is not a Jew? How are we to live in light of them? What if we're in sin? You know, what do we do there? What if there's strife and conflict between us? The law kind of answered all of those things for them. But the law was ultimately about God. The law was filled with all of these ordinances and commandments about how they were to live as his chosen to delivered people in his presence. But it was really there to teach them about who God was, what he was doing. It was meant to teach them about his holiness and his goodness and the fact that he, how he had delivered them and been faithful to keep his promises to them. It was to teach them about who, how they were unworthy of God. They were not, they had no reason, no, no justification for living in fellowship with God because he is so holy and so pure and so good that his very presence meant destruction and death for them. It was meant to teach them 
That they could not do what is necessary to save themselves, to deliver themselves, but they needed to live in active, dependent faith upon him. That's why the law was there. But the Jews had sinful hearts and they twisted the law. Instead of it ultimately being about God, they made it about themselves. They foolishly thought that they could keep the law, that they could actually obey it. And they used it as a means of division to exalt themselves over the Gentiles. See, I'm the chosen, you are not. God picked me, you're left out. I am holy, you are filth. And so the law became a justification for their hatred and prejudice and feelings of superiority against the Gentiles. The law had become a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. But here's what they didn't realize. They didn't realize that the law had also become a barrier between them and God. The law revealed that God is holy and that they were not. And so like a fence or a cage, it actually served to bar them, not just the Gentiles, from true access to God. But the death of Christ changed all that. His blood brought them near. His death made them both one. His flesh was broken to destroy the dividing wall of hostility. He lived a perfectly obedient life to God's law and was crucified in order to abolish it. Now, a lot of people want to know what that means. They get hung up on what does Paul mean when, when he says that they abolished the law. So give me a couple of minutes on that, okay? Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death abolished the law. This doesn't mean that Jesus came along and said, hey guys, I'm abrogating the law. This is no longer important. I'm changing it. It's different now. You just need to follow me. Forget all of that stuff that was said before. No, to to abolish in biblical terms means to fulfill. Jesus fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law perfectly. And because he did that, he rendered the law ineffective. He did what we could not do, what we could never do. Sorry. Um, Okay, so the law no longer serves as a dividing wall between Uh, of hostility between Jew and uh, and Gentile and no longer as a barrier between us and God because Jesus fulfilled the law. And then there's always this follow-up question then, well, what what kind of law did Jesus abolish and, and what is still binding here? How do we think about the law? Did Jesus just do away with the ceremonial law or the civil law, but the moral law still has place? Um, Now, this issue of the relationship of the law to the gospel, the uses of the law, how we think about the law, apply the law in Christian settings is really too big to tackle here and now, but we have an upcoming foundations course called Biblical Hermeneutics where we're going to dive into this. I'd encourage you to be thinking about investing in that already, but I will say this, Paul's expression here, law of commandments expressed in ordinances 
That's big, right? It's all-inclusive. Paul ties all these things together so that we would understand he means everything. Jesus himself in Matthew 5 said that he came to fulfill the law. And when he said that, he meant all the law. Not part of the law, all the law. And I think that that's the same thing that Paul means here. It's not just the civil and ceremonial, but Jesus fulfilled the whole law. The law then is not a direct, hear me carefully, a direct and authoritative guide for a follower of Christ. Instead, it applies in a mediated way. This is big. This is still useful. We should have to think about it. The one commentator said, the law still reveals to us the character of God, the nature of humanity, and the centrality of faith to a right relationship with God. But its commandments no longer govern the behavior of God's people without first passing through the filter of the gospel. So is the law still important to us? Absolutely. Do you still need to read the law and study the law and know the law? Absolutely. But you read it through the lens of the gospel. It can still serve as a mirror to reveal to us that we are sinners. It can still be used by God as a curb to keep us from sinning worse. It could still be at times a guide towards holy living, but it's only as it is understood in light of Christ. But here's what the law does not do. This is the thing that Paul wants us to get. It no longer separates. It no longer alienates. It no longer divides. It no longer ultimately condemns. Christ has brought us near. Christ has made us both one. Christ has fulfilled the law. Our relationship to God and to each other is no longer defined by the law, but by Christ. It is the blood of Christ that has brought us peace. If you have any more questions about that, feel free to talk to me afterwards, or better yet, take the hermeneutics course. <clears throat> so we've answered the who and the how, that Jesus is our peace, and he has brought us peace through his blood, but now let's look at why. Why ultimately did he do that? What was the purpose of Jesus making peace? Well, Paul tells us clearly in verses 15 and 16, Jesus abolished the law so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body on the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The purpose of Christ's peacemaking work was to make us one and to reconcile us to God. To make us one to reconcile us to God. Not only did Jesus destroy the walls of division that were erected in the law, but he also constructed one new man in place of the two. You see, in in reconciliation, no matter what reconciliation it is, there is destruction and there is construction. The barriers, the hostility, the strife, the conflict, whatever hedges you might set up to hide yourself behind or as a defense mechanism to separate and alienate yourself from other people has to be destroyed and Christ must raise us as one. He creates us anew. There's destruction and construction that happens in reconciliation. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about God's work of regeneration in, in 
in verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. That is that God doesn't just kind of say, okay, my position towards you has changed. It's that God creates you anew. As a result of God's work in your heart, in your life, you become a new creation, a new human. And God is not in the process of just going around creating new persons, a bunch of individuals who are his but are autonomous from each other. No, what we see clearly in this text is that God himself is creating in Christ Jesus one new man in place of the two. In Christ Jesus, we are made one, one new man. It's a new humanity, one that is no longer defined by their old man or their old nature or their old race or their old citizenship or their old culture or their old personal preferences, but one new humanity that is defined by Christ. Regardless of their past, regardless of who they were, They have been made one. They are united in Christ. And the result of that is that Christ has made peace. On Friday, Claudia was sworn in as a naturalized citizen. And so Keith and Phyllis and I and Gerardo, our Hispanic church planter, and his sister Lucy, we all got to go and, and watch this. And you know, it was great. In, in fact, in some ways, it was a small picture, a small glimpse of this reconciliation, this peace that Christ made on the cross. Claudia, along with 95 other people from 40 different countries, all became citizens of the United States. It was a glimpse of the gospel. There were 96 people, once separated by race, by language, by nationality, and by geography, but they were all brought near. They were all once aliens to our country, that our laws served as walls of division and barriers between us. They were strangers in our land, and the natural consequence of that fact was there was a felt level of hostility. We were not one. They were different than us. But when they made their oath, all of that changed. It was actually really cool, and I wish you guys could have been there. After they made their pledge, the judge had them look around, look down the aisles, look at each other. And where there once was an Afghani and a Ugandan and someone who was from China and someone from Thailand and someone from Tibet and every, now suddenly he said, look around, you are my fellow Americans. And it was so cool because you could just sense the enmity and the hostility and the division just melt away and there was this rise of peace and unity that they felt like they were all part of one thing. They were all U.S. citizens. Once divided, now brought near. Well, the peace that comes from the gospel is so much better than that, than U.S. citizenship because U.S. citizenship is only dependent upon your voluntary oath before men. The peace that comes to the gospel is God-given. Christ's own blood is the security, is the deposit, is the guarantee. He 
has made the peace. It's not your voluntary statement of saying, I'm willing to do this now, but what he has done in our hearts to change us, to make us one in Christ. It is glorious. We are one new humanity in him. We are one. It's not that in Christ, Gentiles can now rise to the level of Jew. He says, no, you forget all that. There is no more Jew. There is no more Gentile. You might be that, right? Just like I don't stop becoming a man. You don't stop becoming a woman. But we're one in Christ. That's what matters. And that's the first purpose that Paul gives, that Christ has made us one. The second is that not only has he reconciled us to each other, but Christ has also reconciled us both to God in one body through through the cross. Now in one definitive moment in history, one punctiliar point in time, when Christ died on the cross, all of those who were in him died with him. Get just the the reality of this situation. Okay, just Christ died 2,000 years before me. But when Christ died, I died with him. Same with you. When Christ died 2,000 years ago, all of those who preceded Christ, who were waiting in faith and the promises that they had received, looking forward to the coming of the Christ, waiting in faith and in hope for God's deliverance through this promised one, as they trusted in Christ, they too died with Christ. Christ, even though they didn't know who he was. At one moment in time, the church universal, from every point on the map, from every point in time, died together with Christ. How this happens, we don't know exactly. God is not bound by time in the way that we are, but yet it happens. This is how Paul speaks of it. And if that's the case, It means that everyone in this room who's trusting with Christ died together at the same moment in time. Does that not have an impact on the way you think about your relationship with God and others? Does it not? It should. Though it is applied to us individually at moments in time as God regenerates our heart and changes us so that we by faith follow Christ The reality is the church died with Christ. Christ died on the cross so that we might be reconciled to God in one body. And this is the amazing thing here. If you understand the context of the passage, you understand what what Paul is talking about here. We often think about, about Christ's Death, or, or we, we read this passage. Let me, let me start that again. We read this passage. Christ reconciled us both to God in one body, and we think about Christ's body, don't we? One body on the cross that seems to be Christ's body. Christ died there. And though we can't separate that, certainly from Christ's actual physical death on the cross, the reality is, according to the context, Paul is talking about the church. Its closest reference is one new man, the church. Every time Paul uses the word body in Ephesians, with the exception of chapter 2, verse 3, it's in reference to the church. 
Guys, this is huge. Christ's death covered our sin. This was not an expression of love. This was not a moral example. This was not just to teach us how bad our sin is before God just kind of up and forgave us. Christ's death was absolutely necessary. There is no forgiveness, no acceptance, no access, no salvation apart from his substitutionary death for us on the cross, and that was given to us in the church. You cannot separate salvation from the church really any more than you can separate salvation from the cross. This has to change the way we think about our relationships with other people. This has to change the way we think about what it means to be a part of the church. It has to. They were created as one new man. This is why we talk about the church so much at Redeemer. Might make you sick, but we do. This is why we talk about the importance of covenanting your life together in covenant church membership with those around you. This is why community is one of our core values. We talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. But I hope you see why it's important. I hope ultimately that you see why you need the church. The result of Christ's reconciling, uh, reconciling death is the death of hostility. He thereby kills the enmity, the enmity between us and God and the hostility that we would hold towards each other. That is the purpose and the effect of the peace that Christ has brought to us in the gospel. Peace and reconciliation both vertically and horizontally. The purpose and the effect This is what his perfect life, his sacrificial, his grace-giving resurrection has achieved. Perfect peace, perfect reconciliation. And so it's got to affect us, guys. It's got to come down to the level of the way I interact with you all or other people throughout the day. It's that important. You cannot divorce salvation from God's people. Christ's peacemaking work, according to this passage, works clearly in both directions. Our peacemaker has done the impossible. In his death, he has reconciled us both to God and to each other. In his resurrection, he has made us one. In his death, he has killed the hostility that existed between us. In his resurrection, he has made peace. And so it's no wonder then that Paul would say that he himself is our peace. So that was the who, the how, and the why of Christ's past and completed work to make peace. But now we need to look at his continual and ongoing ministry second for our peacemaking. Christ has definitively made peace through his death and resurrection, but his peacemaking is ongoing as well. Christ is still actively ministering peace. Verse 14 said, he himself is our peace. That's ongoing. 
But we also see it here in verses 17 and 18, and we'll certainly see it as we go through Ephesians. But verses 17 and 18 says, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now how is that ongoing? I tell you, I I struggled with really trying to see how I wanted this to fit or how this actually fits within what proceeds and what follows. So I'm going to do a little hermeneutics lesson with you. Hang with me. This is going to be helpful, okay? I couldn't connect it down to verse 19 through 22 as one section because there's a so then there. That means it's drawing a conclusion. It's drawing a conclusion based upon what has preceded it, okay? Which would include verses 17 and 18. So I knew that 17 and 18 had to go with what existed before. Now, when I looked, I could see that continual theme of peace, But what confused me is that how Paul could talk about that Jesus is our peace, Jesus has made peace, and then Jesus preached peace. Because chronologically, that seems in backwards order, doesn't it not? I mean, it seems like if you read the Gospels, what you see is that Jesus proclaimed peace, Jesus made peace, and then Jesus is our peace. And that would be the case if he was only speaking of Jesus' earthly ministry. But he's not. Then there's the whole issue of Near and far, I mean, we think about that. Those who are near are the Jews, those who were far off. Those were the Gentiles. How much time did Jesus really spend with the Gentiles in comparison to the Jews? Well, very little. So how is it that he preached peace to those who were near and those who were far off? But then I, the real difficulty I had was actually verse 18. Because if Paul was referring to any part of Jesus' earthly teaching ministry, then it's really hard to see how verse 18 is actually a reason, is actually a support for that. That through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It just kind of seems like a statement that's out there from left field. Are you hanging with me? I feel like I'm losing some people. I've got some angry faces here. (laughs) Um, Unless he is referring to the ongoing ministry of Jesus that proclaims peace through the church. Then suddenly it all clicks, it all fits together. Not only did Christ come and preach peace to those who were far and near in his earthly ministry, but his ministry of proclamation of peace continues in and through the church. And we know this because Christ himself has given us access to the Father by the one Holy Spirit who equips us and unites us and empowers us and sends us out. Well, then it makes perfect sense. The peacemaking ministry of Jesus continues as we, those whom he has reconciled, continue his message of peace in the power of the Holy Spirit who works within us all. Christ's ministry is ongoing. Redeemer Church is not my ministry. It's Christ's ministry. The opportunities that you have with coworkers, with family, with friends to share the gospel, to proclaim the message of peace, that's not your ministry, that's Christ's ministry. His ministry is ongoing. And he's given us his Holy Spirit to enable us, to equip us, to make that happen. And here again, we see the triune God at work. Not only was the Father at work in chapters 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, God the Son at work to reconcile us to the Father and to each other, but the Holy Spirit is now continuing to work within us as well. And Ephesians has a lot to say about the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is the Holy Spirit who has blessed, who's ultimately the blessing that we receive. He is the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who 
who's given us access to the Father. It's through him and his ongoing ministry that we are being built into a dwelling place for God. It is in the indwelling Holy Spirit that unites us, that reveals God's will to us, that renews our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Through Christ's work on the cross, he has made peace. But the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are continually working by making that a greater and greater reality in our lives and in our hearts. So in our peacemaking, whether that be to proclaim peace to those who are outside of Christ or those by seeking to bring peace within our relationships with each other in the church, we are never, ever alone. It's his ministry. Boy, how we fail to get this. I mean, think about how often we, we fail to pursue peace, to proclaim the gospel of peace because we're thinking we're doing it in our own power rather than realizing it's Christ's ongoing ministry that the Holy Spirit is indwelling us and enabling us and making it possible for us to do what he's called us to do. The triune God is actively at work in us and we are constantly united to him and each other by the word and the spirit. Together, we have access to our heavenly father. Peace, you have to understand, was not just declared and you are biding your time until the return of Christ or until you die for that peace to be a reality in your life. That peace is here and now and you are participating in it. Peace is being made manifest by the ongoing peacemaking of the triune God who has made and is making us one. Does this not change how you think? about your activity for Christ? Is it not an encouragement to know that I am never alone? When we avoid conflict or or we ignore it or when we run and hide, when we hop from group to group, when we are afraid of offending other people, when we in unbelief doubt that God's ability uh, to use us in peacemaking, it, it all just comes down to nothing in light of what is said here. That Christ is doing a work of peacemaking within us. Let that be a great comfort and hope it's not about you. It's never been about you. It's not about how perfect you get it. Do you say things just right? I don't have to be afraid of stepping on toes to speak the truth in love to people who are in error there because I love them and I want to see them restored to a right relationship with the Lord. I don't have to worry about ultimately offending someone. If my heart is pure and my heart is earnest for them and I long to see them with Christ, I'm willing to do it because I know that God will use that even if it doesn't come out the way that I want it to. As it's not dependent upon us, this passage confirms that over and over again that Christ has made peace and is continuing to minister the gospel of peace both to those inside and outside the church. And so... That is Christ's ministry of peacemaking that's ongoing. Now, what can we learn from our part of the process in this text? Okay, I have seven points of application. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. I want to be explicit and make those who like application at the end very, very happy. That was sarcasm directed towards my friend, Mike. 
<clears throat> we are not idle. Christ works in and through us to make peace. And so what do we, how do we respond? What do we do? How do we apply, right? Well, first of all, we have to just stop and praise him and give him thanks that Christ has done what we cannot. All right, we have to start right here. That no human effort has ever succeeded in making peace. But the death of Christ and his resurrection has reconciled us both to God and to each other. And so we can rejoice in the gospel of peace. We can give thanks for all that he has done. We can meditate upon the wonders of the cross and behold and receive it with thanksgiving. The grace of God that has united us to him and to each other. And to believe, deeply believe believe that that is true. All right, that's point number one of application, right? Just believe and rejoice. Second, we have to examine and repent. We need to repent of the ways that we have continued to erect dividing walls of hostility between ourselves and other people. Have you shown partiality to a particular type of people? Do you avoid people who are not like you and not into the things that you are into? This is huge. Do you only spend time with others who reflect you, perhaps in terms of race or skin color or age or economic status or life experience or hobbies or interests? Guys, this catches us in one way or another. We look around the room. We're all pretty young, right? Do you think that might have some bearing on the fact that we're showing partiality towards those who are young? We're primarily white. Do you think that that shows any kind of relationship between who we're spending time with and what we're doing and how we're investing ourselves? It could. My goal for this church is to see us reflect the demographics of our community. Right? Our community, if, what is it, 75% white? So our church should be 75% white. But let's not forget about the other people who are around us. Think about those who are underprivileged. Those who are marginalized and neglected. Those who are, who like, Jim's grandma Stella is on her deathbed. We could have an opportunity to minister to them as well. God has intended for the gospel to be made visible in our relationships. And that means that our relationships ought to reflect God's intention for the church, which is comprised of people from all ages, from all backgrounds, from all races, from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. We have to be intentional about this. And when we do, the gospel is put on display because the world doesn't understand why is that guy hanging out with that person? That does not make sense to me. These people talk about Christ all the time and and their relationships, they are unified even though they have nothing in common but Christ. Sort of a follow-up to that. Are you a person of peace or are you one who creates division and hostility? 
Are you unwilling to slow down? to pursue peace and reconciliation with others? Do you separate and alienate yourself from those who, for whom Christ died? Are your relationships long-standing, Christ-centered, and marked by love and unity, or are they better marked by pride, envy, bitterness, distrust, anger, or hostility? If you find yourself unwilling to pursue peace, with others, then you have to question the reality of the peace that you have with God. Because here's the thing, and this is point number three of application. If you have peace with God, you will naturally pursue peace with other people. Okay? We saw that this text works in two directions, right? That Christ's work of peacemaking not only reconciles us to God, but makes us one. And so we can't say that this relationship vertically is good if there's all sorts of hostility and animosity and separation and division over here. Now, it's one thing if you are, you are actively pursuing that diligently, continually, prayerfully, faithfully, and, and, and it's not being reciprocated on the other side. That's not your fault. But if you are harboring that, if you are enabling that, if you are avoiding the conflict, then it's a problem. Christ's work of peacemaking works in both directions. If you love God, you will love God's people. And you cannot have a right relationship with God and a wrong relationship with others. If there is horizontal hostility in your life, it's an indication of vertical hostility. To correct it, you must first repent and seek reconciliation to God first and then others. But don't fool yourself into thinking that you're fine. If there is anger, fear, guilt, conflict, strife, these are all indications not just of unresolved relationships with others, but unresolved relationship with the Father. And this applies to both believer and unbeliever alike. That the only hope for peace for your soul, the only hope for peace with God, the only hope for peace with each other is the peacemaking work of Jesus Christ. He is the answer. Must pursue him. Do not let the hostility remain. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, I got to zoom in here for a minute and say this to my brothers and sisters. If you are here as a member of Redeemer Church, this has to be all the more true for us. We have made a covenant promise to each other that we would encourage one another, that we would, at times, if necessary, exhort one another or admonish one another to follow Christ with all our hearts. And that includes pursuing reconciliation. God has brought us together from different backgrounds and places and has united us together in a covenant relationship so that in our peace, in our unity, the gospel might be put on display. And so to harbor hostility and bitterness and to pridefully remain separate is to bring reproach upon the name of Christ and Redeemer Church. So please do not remain in it. In humility and in love of Christ, let's get these issues resolved. I'm not pointing at anything specifically. 
We're a church of fallen sinners and they're there. So let's take it seriously. Now, if in examining your heart you found areas where you have shown partiality or created divisions and separations and you've refused to unite with those who, are, who Christ has brought near, but you desire to repent and seek reconciliation, well, here's application point number five from this text. I think it's right. No, it's four. I only have six. Look at that. You guys are lucky. Point number six, reconciliation requires both destruction and construction. It requires both destruction and construction. We see it right there in the text that Christ had to, de- to break down the dividing wall of hostility. He had to remove the barriers that existed there for them to be made one, right? In order for them to be made one, first destruction had to occur. And so what that means is, Reconciliation is not going to be easy. It may be painful. You may have to give up something. It's probably going to take longer than you think is necessary. But it is worth it. Whatever, you you can't have reconciliation with someone else if you're harboring and continuing to build this wall of self-protection or hiddenness or sin or whatever it might be. Okay? Don't fool yourself into thinking that I can maintain my wall and I can pursue reconciliation. It just doesn't happen. And so it requires honesty and humility and specificity and a willingness to put God and others before yourself. But I hope you understand that it's worth it. The peace and well-being that comes to your soul, the restoration between you and the Lord and the restoration between you and others, it's so much worth it. It is worth the hard work. Now, I'm saying this because a lot of us are willing to pursue the idea of reconciliation until it gets a little crusty, until it gets a little old or a little difficult or a little inconvenient, and then we want to bolt. But the reality is, Christ destroys the barriers, and then Christ creates one new human. But no matter how bad your situation is, no matter how much strife or hostility or conflict there is, you have to understand that there is hope. That if you are in Christ, Christ is working to bring about reconciliation. So there's great hope in the gospel. Application point number five now. See the central place of the church for peacemaking. Christ's work on the cross has made one new humanity. The church is meant to function as a display of Christ's work of reconciliation. It should be evident in our relationships with each other. People ought to be able to look around and see just coming in from the outside. There is something different going on here. This is displayed as people who were once separate, who come from various backgrounds and experiences, or perhaps have nothing in common but Christ, come together and love God together and love each other in such a way that those who are outside can look in and see that the gospel does have the power to transform lives. You do not have the right to define the parameters of what you are willing and unwilling to call community. 
saying this to everybody here. All of those personal preferences you have about worship style or about the people that you want to associate with, you do not get to define that. God does. And we are called to make that visible in our lives, in our churches. So if you are only interacting with people who are just like you, then you prove that you are no different than the world. The gospel will never be displayed when I spend time doing worldly things with people who are just like me and everyone else. Did you get that? It's not what we've been called to. But when you love and unite yourself to others without partiality because they are in Christ and you are in Christ and you love them just for that fact alone, then the gospel is made visible and it is glorious. And then the final point of application is that the gospel of peace is not just for those who have been brought near, but for those who are still far off. We, the church, as those who have been united to Christ, have a unique privilege and are empowered by the uniting Holy Spirit who has given us continual access to our Heavenly Father to participate in Christ's ongoing ministry to preach peace to those who are still far off. Our peacemaking is not just for those who are in Christ, but it is extended to those who are not. Why? Because Christ is our peace. He has shed his blood to make peace in every relationship we have, both with God and others. Christ is continuing to minister peace through his word, through the church, and in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we too might participate in making peace with God and others. So friends, with glad and trusting hearts, let's pursue that. Christ is the peacemaker for our peacemaking. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what Christ has done, that he has done what we cannot. He has brought peace to where there was only enmity and hostility and division and a certain doom and condemnation. We thank you that, that he has reconciled us to you and that through his power, he has created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be open to the ways in which the gospel is meant to bring reconciliation to our relationships with other people. I pray that uh, if we find ourselves here in strife and conflict and unresolved issues, that we would take time and be purposeful and intentional to deal with those. Lord, I pray that people would be able to look at our church, that would be able to look at our lives and our relationships and see that Christ has made peace. That there's something different about the way we live and the way we love and the way we sing and the way we praise you and the way we just spend our lives. But that's not gonna happen just by osmosis, by, by us just kind of declaring it so and going through and doing whatever we want. So Lord, we ask for change hearts. Lord, I I pray for peace for all of us, that we would be reconciled to you and your people for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.